In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Frank L. L. Frank Baum wrote a very classic American tale called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And it became a famous Broadway show and later a famous movie. And in this little story, if you don't know it, four, a group of four characters go to visit this mighty deity named Oz. The leader of this little group, this poor, afflicted group, is named Dorothy. And she's a poor little orphan girl. She lost her mom and her dad. They both died. And the only thing that she had in the world was her dog, Toto. And she is traveling to see this powerful deity, Oz, so that Oz can help her return to her uncle and aunt in Kansas. Along the way, she meets a scarecrow. And the scarecrow, he feels, well, a little bit stupid. He has an empty head, he says. So he joins Dorothy to go see this powerful Oz so that he can ask a very simple thing. All he wants is a little bit of intelligence. Along the way, Oz, on the way to Oz, Dorothy and the scarecrow, they meet Tin Man. And Tin Man, well, he wants to feel emotion. He wants to have a heart. So he goes to Oz as well to ask, her heart. Finally, along the way, they meet a poor lion. And this lion is a coward. So he wants to go with uh, to Oz to ask for more bravery, for strength. You could say about this group that they are a poor, afflicted, desperate group of people going to a powerful deity to ask for something. When they arrive to the Emerald City, each one of them meets Oz alone. And this experience of meeting this powerful Oz is uniquely terrible and horrible for each one of them. And after this terrible, horrible experience that frightens them, they eat, he responds by saying, I will grant your request to each of you if you commit a murder if you kill the wicked witch of the West. Frank Albaum, at least him, believes that, that God is a type of Oz that when we go to him asking for simple requests as poor afflicted people, that we must commit a murder to get his favor. And this is classic American literature. Throughout the history of the world, when people have imagined God on their own, they have almost without a fault imagined him as a great ox. Or they have imagined him as a scarecrow in a field somewhere meant to frighten the poor people into obedience. In the Bible, Elijah watches as the prophets of Baal cut themselves until they bleed, and they cry out to Baal, their God, Baal, hear us! We're cutting ourselves. In the Bible, the kings of Israel, even though they knew the loving, true God, some of the Israelite kings offered their, their own children in the fire to the God Moloch. Aztec priests 
back around 500 years, would placate one of their gods who is so vengeful and bloodthirsty that only a beating human heart could win his favor. In the Middle Ages, good Catholics would self-flagellate and beat themselves because maybe this wrathful judge of a god would hear them. And still today, people think that that they can win the favor of their imagined God by committing a murder. Or by maybe even murdering themselves. Still today, widows don't walk on their feet but on their knees and scrape them until they are bleeding as they go to a holy place because then, maybe then, this wrathful God will hear them. Almost without a fault, when we imagine God, we imagine Him as a judge. We imagine him as a great Oz or as a scarecrow in a field meant to scare us. Far too many people go to bed with this thought in mind and live their lives as if God were a wrathful God and we are, we are smoldering under his anger. And they go to bed thinking to themselves, I wonder if God loves me. I wonder if God hates me. I wonder if I'm his child. I wonder if I'm forgiven. And frankly, I don't know if I'm on my way to heaven. I think this kind of thinking is is even more prevalent among religious people. People who go to church. Because of all the people in the world, we know the Ten Commandments. We know the God of Sinai. We know and we've seen that That the God of Sinai, if you reach out and touch that mountain, that you will die. And we know the Ten Commandments. We know what God says, and that if we disobey even the Ten Commandments one time, that we're done. And so as we ask ourselves this anxiety-filled question, am I saved? Sometimes we don't know how to answer it. I remember... Back in South Dakota, I spent my vicar year. It's, it's a year of internship in the ministry. And I had a unique opportunity to sit down with the entire family around a kitchen table. And we began a Bible study. And I began this Bible study, right or wrong, by answering this, by asking this anxiety-filled question. What would happen if you died tonight? Would you go to heaven? Pick one, Yes. No, or maybe. And there was one young woman, she was a teenager, sitting at that table. And she couldn't answer that question, not with any certainty, not without producing so much anxiety that she literally walked away from the table and hid in her room and had a panic attack. Because she she was afraid of going to hell. She could not answer this question with any kind of certainty. She imagined that God was so angry and wrathful at her that she had to hide in her room. In my own experiences dealing with my own soul, nothing will keep me up later at night than thinking about this question. Martin Luther had the same experiences. In dealing with his soul, nothing kept him up later at night than wondering, am I saved? Today, 
Jesus wants to definitively answer that question for us. And he wants to depict and define for us who the anointed one is and who God our Father is. So imagine it with me for just a second. There Jesus stands in a synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And someone gets out the scroll of Isaiah. They hand it to him. And he decides not to stop right at Isaiah 42 and read that. He doesn't read this. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. He doesn't stop at this passage either from Isaiah chapter 63. He doesn't read these words. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in greatness of strength? He doesn't stop at those two passages because then, if he would have, we would have continued to imagine that God is angry with us, that he's a scarecrow or another eyes. Instead, Jesus purposely opens the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. People say that, that this section of Scripture wasn't in the lectionary of the day, it wasn't in the Haftarah. Jesus simply just picks it as his text. Because he wants to reveal to us who the anointed one is, and he wants to show us who God our Father is. And so let's let Luke explain to us and tell us this story. This very specific text that Jesus picks. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Why this text? Why this part of Isaiah out of all the parts of Isaiah that he could have read? Well, he wants to define and depict for us who God our Father is. God our Father is not another Oz who demands a murder so that we can ask something of Him. Instead, God our Father is one who preaches good news to the poor, orphan girls. He doesn't want, He wants to depict God our Father. God our Father is not another Baal who demands that his prophets cut themselves so that God will hear them. God our Father is one who sends his anointed one to shed blood on our behalf. God our Father is not another Aztec God who demands that we rip a beating heart out of someone's chest. Instead, God our Father is one who offers up his own son on our behalf. 
God our Father is not another Moloch who says, just give me your firstborn, that's enough. God our Father is one who offers His firstborn on our behalf. See, Jesus comes to depict who the Anointed One is, and He shows to us who God our Father is. He came to preach good news to the poor. He came to heal and give recovery of sight to the blind. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to give freedom to the prisoners. And Jesus, as He reads these verses from Isaiah chapter 61, He stops in the middle of the verse. Verse 2. And He doesn't read these words to proclaim the day of vengeance for our God. He doesn't read those words on purpose. Because Jesus comes and He reveals God our Father to us as a God who wants to save. Not to bring justice. Yes, it's true that God will bring justice to the earth. That's true too. But that only comes as a consequence of sin. His first will, His primary will, is always, always, always to save and to redeem. He is no Oz. He's no Scarecrow. He's a Savior God. In, in AA... Alcoholics Anonymous, every single participant in that group has to pick what's called a higher power. And they are going to be held accountable by that higher power and and they they will rely and trust in that higher power. And for those of you who, who, who know about AA, there's about as many gods in an AA meeting as there are participants. And I once asked someone who participates in AA, well, why is that? Why do the participants in AA pick someone other than the true God to be their higher power? And someone responded to me in this way. They said, because almost everyone in AA without fault is afraid of God. They think to themselves, you know what, one day someone woke me up because I was laying in a gutter and I ruined my marriage. How can God love me? He must be angry at me. So it makes sense then that they would not make the true God their supreme being, but some other God. Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, has come to correct our imagined God. And He's real honest with us. As He reveals to us God our Father, He says, you know what? Life is going to be hard. In Isaiah chapter 61, he doesn't mince any words about it. He says, life's going to be hard. Some of you are going to be poor, guilty. But I have come to bring forgiveness, says the Messiah. He's real honest about what life is going to be like. He says, some of you are going to have broken hearts. Isaiah says. Some of you are going to understand what it means to to have someone walk out of a marriage and to sit in your room crying and alone, wondering, can anybody love me? Because your spouse left you after 15 years. The Messiah has said, I have come to show you love. And that I love you. 
The Messiah, he's real honest about what life is going to be like. He says, some of you are going to be mourning. You're going to stand next to the grave of someone that you've loved for a long time. But I have come to give you life. Messiah, he's real honest about life. He's going to, he says, you know, some of you are going to feel despair. And you're going to know what it's like to walk onto one of the New York City bridges and read the sign that says, if you are thinking about suicide, call this number. And you're going to think, you know what? I should call that number. The Messiah said, I have come for you to give you hope. The Messiah says to us tonight, the anointed one, walk with me and watch as I suffer for you to take away your guilt. Watch with me as I hang my head in death. Meditate on my suffering and begin to understand that I have come to show you love. Marvel and meditate on the open tomb on Easter and then you will begin to understand that I have come to give you hope. When we think about God's anointed one, then we can begin to understand who God our Father is. Throughout the course of human history, people have imagined who God our Father is. And almost without a fault, we have imagined Him as an angry and wrathful God. And we become afraid of Him. But we must begin to know God our Father and His heart, first of all, through His revealed Word. Not from our imaginations. And second of all, we must begin to know God our Father through His incarnate Word. And then we'll begin to understand that God loves us more than we have ever imagined. Our God, our Father, is just as loving, just as gracious, just as merciful, just as good as Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.